Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution and we're going to be finishing off a chapter on war communism. The kind of communist society that the Bolsheviks were running in a state of war, slash the aftermath of war, and all of the pressures that they were managing and trying to find a way through. So let's continue. Peasant Wars Having assisted the Bolsheviks' rise to power through a tumultuous agrarian revolution, the peasants within six months came to be seen as a grave threat to the regime, by dint of their capacity to starve the population. Footnote 77. Sporadic uprisings against detachments procuring food occurred in the Orals and the Moscow industrial region as early as spring 1918, at a time when Soviet power was generally welcomed by the peasantry. But it was the launch of the food dictatorship in May that triggered a wave of peasant protests in autumn 1918. In 1919, there were hundreds of uprisings, mostly small in scale, prompted by the seizure of grain, conscription, labor or cartage obligations, or abuses by Soviet officials. Of the 89 uprisings in the Volga region in 1919, by far the biggest was that of the Kaftans, Chapani, named after the smock worn by the rebels. Armed mainly with pikes and pitchforks, they rose up in Samara and Simbursk after the imposition of an emergency tax in March. The rebellion spread fast, and at its peak involved over 100,000 people. It worked to the benefit of Kolchak, whose army at that time was advancing east towards the Volga. Red Army units, backed by special Cheka units, abandoned the Eastern Front in order to suppress the rebellion, which they did with the almost ruthlessness. The Volga region saw another large rural insurgency in 1920. The Pitchfork, Vilochno, uprising was concentrated in Ufa and parts of Samara and Kazan, and the 35,000 insurgents were mainly Tatars. It was provoked by the severe food requisitioning that was being carried out now that the Reds had captured the area. Quote, better to die at once than expire from hunger and disease, end quote, was a widely reported reaction. The Black Eagle Uprising, which formed a part of this larger uprising, centered on Samara, revealing a rising level of politicization. Quote, we are the peasant millions. Our enemies are the communists. They drink our blood and oppress us like slaves. End quote. Footnote 78. Peasants frequently behaved in bestial fashion towards Soviet and party officials. In Penza in March 1920, Shuveyev, the local commissar, had his nose cut off, then his ears, then his head. The report concluded, quote, Now everything is peaceful and quiet. The peasants were calmed with the help of the lash. End quote. Footnote 79. As this suggests, Bolsheviks retaliated ruthlessly, taking hostages and shooting leaders. Their military superiority was always decisive. In one battle, 15 from the Soviet forces were killed and 47 wounded, whereas 1,078 peasants were killed, 2,400 wounded, and 2,029 captured. Footnote 80. 
In the Volga region in 1918, rebels killed 387 officials and their families in retaliation for which 1,972 rebels were shot. The Kaftan rebels killed about 200, but the punitive detachments killed 1,000 in combat and executed a further 600. In Bolshevik eyes, these uprisings were the work of kulaks, counter-revolutionaries, and black hundreds. In the Kaftan uprising, kulaks were a not insignificant force. Many centers of insurgency in Simbirsk and Samara were former trading settlements where up to 40% of households were wealthy. But almost everywhere, rebellions were supported by the entire peasant community. In January 1919, in Vedlozyskaya Township in Olenets County, one official admitted that those taking part were mainly from the poorest population. Footnote 81. Incidentally, it is noteworthy that in comparison with the peasant movement in 1917, women played a far less significant role. It is doubtful that the many forms of peasant resistance can usefully be lumped together as a single green movement. The Soviet authorities used the term greens to denote the roving bands of deserters from the Red Army who lived in the fields and forests beyond the villages. These deserters survived by banditry, periodically attacking requisition squads and Soviet officials. Their bands were more structured and politicized than those of the peasants who rose up spontaneously. Generally, they could rely on the sympathy of villagers, but whenever they tried to organize peasants into a more permanent structure or to draw them into compulsory labor duties, it would provoke discontent. The truly massive peasant movements that indubitably threatened the regime came after the white threat had been eliminated and lasted for about a year from autumn 1920. These movements saw peasant protest escalate to a new level as green bands formed peasant armies, commanded by men with combat experience. The movement was most intense in the areas where the Razvertska was applied most ferociously in summer 1920, namely Tambov and Western Siberia. In Tambov, villagers in Kamenka rose up against requisition agents on the 12th of August, killing seven. A.S. Antonov, a former left SR who had served the Soviet cause with distinction until summer 1918, quickly put together an army that eventually had territorial divisions and hierarchies of command, supply lines based on the villages, and unions of toiling peasantry as its political base. This partisan army overthrew the structure of Soviet authority killing more than 2,000 Soviet and party officials. The Union of Toiling Peasantry, set up at the end of 1920, set as its tasks, quote, to overthrow the communist Bolshevik power, which has brought the country to misery, ruin, and shame. In order to destroy this violent government and its regime, the Union is organizing voluntary partisan units to conduct armed struggle to bring about, one, political unity of all citizens, without division into classes, excluding the Romanov household. 2. All-round furtherance of a lasting peace with all foreign powers. 3. The summoning of a constituent assembly on the basis of universal, direct, and equal suffrage, 
without predetermining its will in choosing and establishing a political system and preserving the right of voters to recall representatives who do not express the will of the people. End quote. Footnote 82. The Antonov movement promised freedom of expression, conscience, the press, association, and assembly, complete socialization of the land, the satisfaction of the urban and rural population with means of subsistence, in the first place food through the cooperatives, regulation of prices and labor and factory produce via the state, partial nationalization of factories, with heavy industry, mining and metallurgy, in the hands of the state workers' control and state inspection of production. Significantly, there was no mention of Soviets. Footnote 83. By February 1921, practically the entire territory of the Volga had fallen under the control of 40,000 partisans. Thereafter, the Red Army poured forces in, using light aircraft and possibly poison gas, with Tukhachevsky displaying a mercilessness that was shocking even by the dismal standards of the Civil War. The biggest of the peasant wars in terms of participants and scale was that in Western Siberia. Here the peasants had supported the partisan movement against the whites, but the commencement of brutal food requisitioning in summer 1920 created widespread disaffection. Handwritten notices began to circulate. Quote, Long live the Jewish leaders. If you are hungry, comrades, then sing the Communist Internationale. End quote. The rebellion broke out at the end of January 1921 in a number of centers, notably Ishimsky County in Tumen Province, then spread to the entire province, and then into the various counties of Omsk and Ekaterinburg provinces. The initial resistance was led by women, but it soon took on military form, involving mainly peasants, but also Cossacks, local intellectuals, and white-collar workers. By mid-February, rebels had overthrown Bolshevik power across one million square kilometers of western Siberia, rising to 1.5 million at the peak of the rebellion, and had severed railway contact with European Russia. On the 21st of February, they seized the city of Tobolsk, where a Soviet was formed that proclaimed civil liberties, free trade, equal rations, denationalization of industrial enterprises, and the restoration of the old courts. There may have been as many as 100,000 men fighting, almost the size of the force that Kolchak had had at his disposal. Yet the different divisions, groups, and armies were never subject to a unified command. Cavalry detachments and couriers succeeded in coordinating action across thousands of kilometers, yet peasant detachments were effective mainly when fighting on home territory. The battle for the town of Petropavlovsk was particularly bitter, the town changing hands several times before being seized by the Red Army. Not until autumn 1921 did the Red Army regain full control. Particularly worrying for the authorities was the way the peasant communists of the Altai region, far to the southeast, deserted to the peasant unions. It is claimed that at least 10,000 party members, Soviet officials, members of their families, and Red Army soldiers perished in the fighting. 
but the casualties on the side of the insurgents probably ran into the tens of thousands. Footnote 84. In 1921, there were over 50 large-scale peasant uprisings in regions as far-flung as Ukraine and Belarusia, the North Caucasus, and Karelia. What worried the Bolshevik government was that in a loose way, the different regions saw themselves as united in a common cause to overthrow the dictatorship. The Antonov partisans, for example, fought in the expectation that Makhno would come to their aid even though, unbeknownst to them, he had fled to Romania. More especially, the Bolsheviks were anxious lest Red Army soldiers go over to the insurgents. There were mutinies in Gomel, Krasnaya Gorka, Verny, Nizhny Novgorod, and elsewhere. The political influence of the SRs was evident in most of the peasant insurgency, but generally the rebels were more supportive of Soviets than the SR party center. It is true that there were a number of demands for the return of the Constituent Assembly. In Zlatost district in Ufa, a band of 1,000 horsemen roamed under the slogan, quote, Down with Trotsky, long live Lenin and the Constituent Assembly, end quote. But the most popular slogan called for Soviets without communists. Footnote 85. Organizationally, the leaderships of the different uprisings acted independently of the SR party. Rebels were angry at the cruel policies of war communism and the widespread corruption in the Soviet and party apparatus, and desperate to see the communist regime overthrown. Yet a majority remained attached to the ideal of Soviet power, which they associated with the victory over the landlords and with land redistribution. The Kronstadt Rebellion. Those who pushed hardest to restore the ideals of the 1917 revolution were the sailors and soldiers of Kronstadt, a naval base on Kotlin Island in the Gulf of Finland, some 30 kilometers from Petrograd. See figure 5.2. Footnote 86. They had been the flower of the revolution in 1917 in the eyes of contemporaries. On, 27 and the 20, on the 27th and 28th of February 1921, disturbed by the way in which the authorities were dealing with the general strike in Petrograd, meetings were held on board the battleship Petropavlovsk. On the 1st of March, 16,000 met on Anchor Square and passed a resolution, drafted by the senior naval clerk Stepan Petrichenko and the artillery electrician P. Perepelkin, which called for the dismantling of war communism and, crucially, for the devolution of power to freely elected Soviets, in which all left parties would compete freely and for freedoms of speech, the press, and association. In addition, it called for political departments, special military units, the Cheka, and all privileges of communists to be abolished. Unlike the peasant rebels, these sailors did not expressly call for the overthrow of the Bolshevik regime, but did wish to see the dismantling of one-party dictatorship. Theirs was not the program of any single party, although it was probably closest to that of the SR maximalists, and it was considerably to the left of the political demands then being raised by strikers in Petrograd and Moscow. 
when the town fell under the control of the rebels, about 200 local communists escaped across the ice. But about 900 tore up their party cards and threw in their lot with the rebels. 300 who refused to do so were placed under arrest. Perhaps 12,000 out of 18,000 military and 8,000 to 9,000 adult male civilians, out of a total civilian population of 30,000, backed the rebellion. On the 7th of March, the Bolsheviks began military operations to crush the insurgency, confident that a speedy victory would coincide with the opening of the 10th Party Congress the following day. However, Effective leadership from professional officers on the island led to Red Forces being repulsed with very heavy losses. Scores of Red Army soldiers were shot for refusing to pacify the rebels. On the 16th of March, riflemen of the 27th Omsk Division, who had excelled against the Whites, mutinied with an appeal to go to Petrograd and beat the Jews. Nevertheless, news that food requisitioning was to be abolished seems to have stiffened Red Army morale. On the 17th of March, the final assault by some 45,000 troops got underway, and by the following morning, the island had been retaken by the Reds. By that stage, some 700 Soviet troops had been killed and 2,500 injured. Over the next couple of months, 2,103 prisoners were sentenced to death though the number actually shot was in the hundreds, and 6,459 sentenced to terms of imprisonment, 1,464 of whom were released. Lenin depicted the Kronstadt Rebellion as a white guard plot. However, in a post-mortem report of the 5th of April, the Czechist SS Agronov, who rose to become head of the NKVD, the successor to the Cheka, at the time of the show trial of Zinoviev and Kamenev in 1936, characterized it accurately as, quote, a disorganized uprising of the sailor and worker mass, end quote, and denied that it had any connection with the whites. Footnote 87. The rebels' dream of local autonomy and their loathing of privilege were anathema to the whites, and they turned down a request by former SR leader Viktor Chernov then in Estonia, to visit the island under the banner of the Constituent Assembly. The Bolsheviks claimed that the true leader of the rebellion was Major General Alexander Kozlovsky, a former Tsarist officer who had joined the Red Army and been appointed Director of Artillery on the island. The evidence for this is thin, although white agents certainly intervened once the revolution got underway. Petrochenko persuaded a reluctant revolutionary committee to accept aid from the monarchist Baron P. V. Vilken, leader of the Naval Officers' Organization, who visited the rebels as a representative of the Red Cross. How far, on the basis of Cheka reports, the Bolsheviks believed the revolution was a white card plot is difficult to say. A couple of months later, the Cheka claimed to uncover a Petrograd fighting organization, led by geography professor V. N. Tagentsev, which planned to, quote, set fire to factories, eliminate Jews, and blow up the monument to the communards, end quote. They arrested 833 people, overwhelmingly intellectuals, 96 of whom were shot or died in detention, 
including the Silver Age poet Nikolai Gumilev. In 1992, an investigation concluded that the Tagentsev affair was fabricated by the Cheka. However, there is documentation to suggest that at least some of those arrested were working to overthrow the regime. Footnote 88. Whether or not the Bolsheviks did believe that the Kronstadt Rebellion was a white guard plot, they had every reason to fear counter-revolution. That said, they could certainly have dealt with the rebels in a less bloody fashion. It is very doubtful that the sailors and soldiers sought armed confrontation with the regime. The rising was poorly timed and ill-prepared, and the Bolsheviks had a huge military superiority. Moreover, there was definite scope for negotiation, given that the Bolsheviks had decided to end war communism at exactly the point when they took the decision to use overwhelming military force. Yet, they were in no mood to compromise. This intransigence sprang not from confidence, but from fear. They felt themselves embattled, besieged by an insurgent populace, and the fear, unrealistic on any objective appraisal, was that the rebels would link up with the myriad peasant rebellions, strikes, and mutinies, and thus provide a bridgehead for the whites and their foreign backers. Knowing how they were hated, they were convinced that any show of weakness would give sustenance to rebels elsewhere, especially in the armed forces. Yet, in their hearts, the Bolsheviks must have known that the aspirations of the rebels, for Soviet power, equality, justice, were broadly the same as those that had inspired millions to support them in 1917. And in suppressing the rebellion, they bade farewell to the most cherished, and most utopian, ideals of the 1917 revolution. Utopian because, having gone through unimaginable horrors in the intervening three and a half years, it is hard to believe that Soviet democracy could have provided Russia with stable government. The civil war had transformed the meaning of the revolution. Henceforward, nothing more would be heard of power to the Soviets, worker participation in management, or a democratic army. As Lenin said, Kronstadt was the, quote, flash that lit up reality better than anything else, end quote. When the Bolsheviks had seized power, they had imagined that the working class would be at the heart of the political system. By March 1919, Lenin could declare that Soviet rule was rule for the proletariat rather than by it. Paradoxically, the end of the civil war increased rather than decreased the determination of the party to substitute itself for the working class. In his report to the 11th Party Congress in March 1922, Lenin declared, quote, Very often those who go into the factories are not proletarians, they are casual elements of every description, end quote. To which Shlepnikov, leader of the now-defeated workers' opposition, responded, quote, Permit me to congratulate you on being the vanguard of a non-existent class. We will not have another and better working class. We have to be satisfied with what we've got. End quote. Footnote 89. Against all the odds, the Bolsheviks had built the rudiments of a state, using an army, party organization, ideology, and terror. This was a state based on a party dictatorship, 
which monopolized the means of production and the distribution of basic resources, which operated through peremptory decrees, emergency powers, and extra-legal coercion. In form, it was a less-than-efficient bureaucracy, characterized by arbitrariness, commandism, and waste, and it depended for its functioning on powerful bosses and their cliques. Historians debate how far this came into being as a direct result of Bolshevik ideology and how far as a result of the circumstances of civil war. Some argue that the Marxist notion of the dictatorship of the proletariat as the violent suppression of the former ruling classes justified extreme coercion and fostered antipathy to any form of compromise. They point to Lenin's notion of the party as a vanguard, which claimed privileged insight into the workings of history. Others put more weight on circumstances, seeing the massive reliance on coercion as a response to the remorseless demands of raising an army and feeding the population, to entrenched localism, passive resistance, and inertia. Once civil war raged, they suggest, the atmosphere of pervasive violence and destruction, starvation and disease, the constant emergencies, the absence of popular support, bred dictatorial habits of rule and a brutalized psychology on the part of the leadership. In 1920, L.B. Kamenev explained it thus, quote, Yes, we ruled with the help of dictatorship, and in view of the colossal events which we have gone through, if we had summoned plenums and tried to solve problems by parliamentary methods, then we would have destroyed the revolution, because for us winning time was extremely important. End quote. Footnote 90. The political culture of the RKPB was significantly shaped by the experience of civil war. The Bolshevik ethos had always been characterized by ruthlessness, determination, authoritarianism, and class hatred. But the Civil War turned these qualities into cruelty, fanaticism, absolute intolerance of any views other than those within the range of permitted Bolshevik opinion. These qualities became central to the anti-democratic culture of the new state. The crude belief that the end justifies the means was espoused without any sense that means may corrupt ends. In August 1919, the newspaper Krasny Mech, Red Sword, declared, quote, Everything is permitted to us because we are the first in the world to raise the sword not in the name of ensurfment and oppression, but of general happiness and liberation from slavery. End quote. Footnote 91. That the Bolsheviks achieved victory, even if at a punishing cost, further strengthened illusions of infallibility and omnipotence and pitilessness towards opponents. The invasion of foreign powers, the failure of revolution to spread across Europe, bred a mentality of encirclement, of Russia as an armed fortress. During the Civil War, an obsession with enemies developed, that became a distinctive element of the psychology of the communist leadership. Quote, the enemy keeps watch over us and is ready at any minute to exploit our every blunder, mistake, or gesture of vacillation. End quote. And this was not only a fear of the external enemy, but of the enemy within. On the 3rd of October 1919, party members in the Western sector of the troops for the internal defense of the Republic the Czechist armed force, were told, quote, 
vigilantly pursue and listen to every conversation on the streets in order to catch the mood of the Philistine public. By this means, we can gradually root out all harmful elements from the population. End quote. Footnote 92. Such paranoia would grow during the 1920s. And that's going to do it for this week as we conclude this chapter. Next time we'll be carrying forward and looking at the economic policies as they tried to rebuild, presumably. One thing overall I find recurring in this chapter is the ways in which the Bolsheviks had to lean on authoritarian methods, and some of that is an interesting, extremely difficult situation of how decentralized and large and widespread Russia was at the time, and that in itself presenting a huge problem of literally getting food and bringing it to places and getting people fed in quite basic terms, and that they just struggled to do these things for various reasons, and that so their usual backup plan to any difficult, unsolvable problem was forceful coercion and authoritarian commands. On my next-to-read kind of list, one of the ones I had is um, Post-Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin, which I think I will now read next, once we finish this book, obviously I'm not about to swap midway, but I think it'll be interesting to read about how things function in modern Western society, where we are post-scarcity for the most part. If America suddenly switched to being communist overnight, it's still a large expanse of country that would be very spread out and would have to figure things out in those terms and might have the same issues with external enemies in certain ways. But as far as I can tell, we figured out how to make vast, vast quantities of food at this point. We have made such efficiencies that, unless I'm just misinformed about how all of these things work, we would not run out of those things nearly as readily. We would maybe not have access to literally foods from all over the world, depending on how society's structures changed, but it would be a far cry from literally lacking bread. And so I'm interested in reading this book to see... Am I even right in this initial premise, or is there a different argument being made in it? And to read a little bit more about a more modern examination of how anarchist principles might lead to something more productive than the extremely authoritarian approach being taken in the Russian Revolution. But that's all for this time. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as going to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network, support different podcasts, and get a lot of fun stuff on there too. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.